This morning, we continue our sermon series looking at the gospel or the letter to James from James, and we've entitled this sermon series, Let's Climb. It's an invitation to follow Jesus in an active faith life. We've talked through this series about different temptations, different challenges that keep us from an active life of faith, that keep us from uh, following Jesus, that keep us stuck where we are, or even turning around and uh, giving up, heading back down the mountain. And so this morning, again, as we open up God's Word, we're going to look at James chapter 4, and we're going to see some more temptations that uh, face us around the world. So you can follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, And you can also open up your own Bibles if you have them with you to James chapter 4. So James asks this question as he starts. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But... God gives us more grace. That's why scripture says that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them against the law and or judges them against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping the law, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you? to judge your neighbor. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not not even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So far, the reading of God's word. Two weeks ago, when I was preaching, I said that inconsistency is unsustainable. What I meant by that was what James says in this chapter. James argues that Every person has desires that battle within you. Is that true for you? Do you have desires that battle within you? Well, if it's not true, then you don't need to keep listening. You can just take a nap. But maybe 
Maybe you do. Maybe you desire to care for yourself, but you also have the responsibility to care for other people in your life or other members of your family. Maybe you're tempted to take shortcuts to get what you want, but you also want to be a person of integrity and to be seen as a person of integrity. You want to save face in front of others, but you also want to speak your mind. You have limited energy and time and money, and there are more needs than you have the capacity to meet. What do you do with the decisions that battle within you? Situations in our life come and go, but where do you look for guidance, for wisdom, for power? Maybe you look to God. Maybe you look to yourself. Maybe you look to some person or guru to guide you in different aspects or areas of your life. So maybe you follow an influencer on Instagram uh, for wisdom on how to dress. And you follow an investor on Twitter for how, what to do with your money. You look to certain newspaper columns for wisdom and advice. And then you come to church on Sunday and you hear James say in his letter to the church, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? James clearly comes across very aggressively, very passionately here. We might read James' words and mistakenly think that we can't have any connection with the world around us. Or even worse, that we should not love or care for people who aren't Christians. But that's obviously not what James means. Just last week, in, when we were looking at chapter 3, Pastor Harrison reminded us about God's great love and his compassion for all people. Instead, when James says these aggressive and passionate words, he's writing to a church and to Christians whose Bible wasn't, didn't include the New Testament, it was just the Old Testament. And when James says, you adulterous people, he's alluding to or referring to previous stories in the Old Testament, especially the story of Hosea. James's first listeners knew the stories of the Old Testament probably better than any of us. And they knew that God, in these stories, God welcomes and cherishes his, and redeems his people. He welcomes his people into what he calls a covenant relationship with them, a relationship guided by promises made to one another. God promises to provide to his people what they need and more. And God's people promise to love and thank him and be committed to him. But again and again throughout the Old Testament, God's people cheat on him. They run after other good-looking idols. They grab at the first sign of hope that they see instead of waiting for God or trusting in God to see what he will provide. Often they don't even ask God. They become friends with the people around them and they chase after other gods and they ignore, avoid, and even run away from God and his love for them. They, in other words, had made promises and then committed adultery. They broke their promises and ran after, gave their hearts to someone else. Imagine for a moment that you are married 
And you find out that the person you're married to has been cheating on you for years. Not just with one person, but with many different people. What a terrible thing that would be. How difficult it would be to still remain committed to your partner at that point. But even if you were, if, if you decided, even at that point, after all of that, you said, I know I'm still going to be committed to you. You might say something like, well, now I don't want you going out with any of your friends. Either pick me or pick your friends. You wouldn't mean, of course, that your partner could never have another friend. You would simply be firmly and clearly expressing that for your marriage to work, you must be first and most important in your partner's heart, in their time, and in their whole life. This is why James ends this section that we finished today saying, Submit to God. Submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What is this word, submit? Last summer, I performed a number of weddings, which is pretty normal. But it was interesting to me that I think I did four or five different weddings, and all of these couples didn't know one another. But all of them said to me, at one way or another before the ceremony, they said, we don't want to use that word submit in our vows. They thought that submit was a dirty word. They thought it... Uh, it meant that the man would force the woman to do whatever he wanted and the woman would have no rights and no freedoms. Now, if you are married, I really hope that that's not what your marriage looks like. God does not want anyone to be forced into service to someone else and God will not force anyone else to serve him. These couples, I think, had it wrong because submit is not a bad word. Submit simply means to yield to the will of someone else, to give up your own will and do what someone else desires of you or for you. So whether submitting is good or bad depends on the person that you are submitting to. If you will submit your will to a person who is good, then submitting is a very good thing. James says that if you submit to God, he will lift you up. That wherever you are and whatever you do, that if you give your life to God, God will give you a higher and a better life than you would have without him. This means that submitting to God promises to be a good thing, but the choice is still yours. God doesn't force or, co or coerce anyone. You can have your life and live it in your own power. You can go through this life depending first and foremost on yourself, and you can end your life depending first or only on yourself. Many people around the world do. Many of us who call ourselves Christians still struggle not to depend only or first and foremost on ourselves. James, in this passage, picks up a major theme that isn't just in his book, but is in all, all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. A theme of God's sovereignty, God's rule and his love. And on the other hand, humanity and our free will, our free choice. Those are the two actors 
in the whole story of Scripture. God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the other second actor is humanity. All of us. Throughout many years. The Bible as a story introduces God first as someone who is a creator in control of everything. God is sovereign. A word we used in the New City Catechism this morning, a word that comes from an older English, meaning king or ruler, someone who's in, in charge or in control. God creates the world and keeps it moving. He's bigger and he's better than his creation. He is able to do anything within his creation and anything with humanity. But the Bible also tells us that God is good, that God desires to, that, that God loves his creation and he desires that his creatures, his people would love him back. So we come to the second major actor in the story of the Bible, humans. As people, as humans, we have free will. We can choose and we're responsible for our actions and choices. However, often our choices both have more effects than we expect and are more limited than we desire. When we see, and I mentioned in the prayer earlier, that the brokenness in our world, the, the war and, and the unrest around our world, even here at home, it's because of the choices that people have made, often choices that have spiraled out of control and beyond what they initially intended. But we also are limited in our choice. We're limited by the sin and brokenness in our own hearts, the brokenness in our world, but also by the choices and limits of others. I've joked with you earlier in this year already that no matter how good of a New Year's resolution you had, somehow we can never seem to accomplish the good that we want to do. No matter how good we want to do, no matter the best choice that we make, we always seem to be unable, not quite powerful or able enough to make the good thing happen that we want to do. We have free will, but we also have limits. Well, throughout this series, we've talked about practical temptations in our everyday lives. And so given all I've said, I want to suggest to you two different Uh, practical temptations that we might encounter. For some of us, uh, because we have free will, we are tempted to live as if we are in complete control of our lives. So we refuse to submit to anyone or to trust anyone. Like those couples that I married this summer, they say, we don't want to use that word submit. We'll do things ourselves. Uh, There's an author and pastor, Craig Grishel, who talks about this temptation in his book, The Christian Atheist. The tagline for this book is, when you believe in God, but you live like he doesn't exist. In other words, we might see our limits all the time, but we keep trying to extend ourselves and our own abilities. We say we believe in God, but we put our trust in ourselves. We live, we plan, we budget based on our own abilities. And we trust only ourselves or or maybe the people closest to us. The second temptation, the other temptation, is that we see God or we see other big controlling forces in our world. Maybe institutions or governments. And we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to stop trying. We easily give up because we fear that, well, we're powerless. 
that nothing will change for the better in our lives, no matter what we do. And so we become hopeless, maybe even depressed. Everything is meaningless, we might say. The things I used to love, I don't find any joy in them anymore. As we continue this sermon, I want to talk a little bit more about these two temptations. James gives two specific examples of that first temptation to live as if we're in complete control of our own lives. He talks about boasting about tomorrow and about judging others in the passage that we read. Think for a moment about how common both of these practices are. Boasting about tomorrow and judging others. If you look around our country or our world, every big company has a plan and a projection for the rest of this year, for next year. Maybe most even have a plan for five years or ten years or more. And you might say, and you'd be right, that, well, of course it's not wrong to plan for the future. Our church has a vision statement and a vision implementation plan as well. But planning for the future based only on our own strength and our own abilities is the way of our world. Christians, James says, are supposed to live differently because we don't live in our own strength. We don't pursue our own goals. We depend on the power of God. We're pursuing the purposes of God. So we shouldn't make plans apart from God. We shouldn't make plans the way that the world makes plans. Likewise, James says, Christians should not judge the way the world judges. Because when we judge, we put ourselves on top of the law as if we were perfect and able to keep it and point out who's breaking it and where. Maybe you can think of examples in your own life where other people pressure you to conform, where other people judge you, or where you see others judging others. Judgment and the pressure to conformity in our world, I think, are largely the same thing. This is what most commonly, I think, what judgment sounds like. It sounds like, sounds like this. You cannot be a part of us unless you act like us. That's what I think judgment sounds like most often in our world. You cannot be a part of us unless you act like us. Or the flip side of that is, because you're acting differently from us, you can't be a part of us. You cannot be a part of us unless you act like us. Your personal preferences or needs might not be respected at work. Maybe you or your children are expected to participate or contribute to a group or society or a project in ways that are uncomfortable or strange to you. Whatever the context, we get the message in many ways and at many places. You cannot be a part of us unless you act like us. James reminds Christians that we should live differently from the world. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it, he says. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, when we say, you can't be a part of us unless you act like us, we're putting ourselves above the law. We're saying proudly that we're perfect, or at least that we're much better than others, and that others should be like me or like us. This is what judgment sounds like in worldly terms. It sounds like 
We have it all figured out. You should be like us. And it doesn't sound like good news. So what is the good news? We read that passage of scripture today that I think and expect that for many of you sounded very harsh, very passionate, very aggressive. But there is good news. Even in this passage, for all who depend fully on God and who join uh, God and God's people and the climb and an active life of faith. The good news of the Bible is that all people are invited to become more like Jesus rather than more like somebody else. What do I mean by this? Well, the story of Jesus that we see in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, shows us that Jesus depended fully on God. And like Jesus and with God's help, you are invited to fully depend on God too. But here's the incredible thing about Jesus. When you become more and more like Jesus, you become more and more like yourself. When you become more and more like Jesus, you become more and more like yourself. Each of us is so different, even here in this room. We have different interests, different abilities, different passions and perspectives. Pick any topic, we have different views. But when we become more like Jesus, we do not all immediately become clones. We do not all immediately see the world exactly the same way or have exactly the same priorities or interests or abilities. Can you imagine if all of us, when we decided to become more like Jesus, wanted to line up one after another and give a sermon on a Sunday morning? That would be, that would be too much, I think. This is how you tell the difference between a human organization and the church of God. In a human organization, and even something good, but built by human, but built by humans and built for our own purposes, everyone is pressured to be the same. Everyone is, even if you're doing good work, everyone is pressured to fit in and just do just their part. Nothing more. To be just like their neighbor or their partner. But when we join God in doing what God has, when we are the church, the called out people of God, then we are diverse people pursuing God together. This is possible only by God's power. Apart from God's power, apart from God's sovereignty and his control, but also his love, people with differences will always devolve into judgment or into pride. They'll always split into groups with the stronger people saying, be like me, and the weaker people being forced to follow or join. Apart from God's power, we split into groups, then to more and more groups. We can see the fracturing of pride, the battling desires James talks about everywhere in our world even in our own church, even in our own hearts. The invitation to become more like Jesus is an invitation to fully depend on God the way that Jesus did. And it's an invitation to a journey, 
to a process whereby you can become more and more like yourself. More and more like the person that God made you to be. Not the person who God made your neighbor to be or your loved one to be. The person who God made you to be. And also, a person who's in relationship with people who are different from you. The invitation to become more like Jesus is an invitation to look at Jesus, to wonder at his character, to follow Jesus, and even to know and experience the joy and love and peace, the hope of Jesus. That invitation is for every person. It's for the people who struggle with that first temptation that we've already talked about, the temptation to do everything by yourself and for yourself. But it's also for people who struggle with that second temptation. The temptation simply to give up and stop caring. To give up and stop caring about your whole life or to give up and stop caring about some part or aspect of your life. If you're ready, you're nearly ready just to give up and stop caring, consider that the Bible says that God cares more for you than you care for yourself. The Bible says that God has a better plan for you than you have for yourself. This passage reminds us that God is more powerful and more righteous than you are. That God is a- has good plans for you and he is more able to make your good plans ha- his good plans happen for you than you are able to make your plans happen for yourself. Your plans might be beautiful, and beautiful, hopeful dreams, but God's are better. Your plans might be nightmares or worries, frets about the future. God's plans are better. And he is more powerful, more powerful, more able to make them happen. A few years ago, I heard stories from people around the world who began having dreams. Well, they didn't begin having dreams. They were having dreams like we all do. But they began to have the same thing happen in their dreams. They were going to bed, sleeping like we normally do, and dreaming like they normally do. Some were dreaming of the present and their stress. Some were dreaming of the future and their hope. But whether into their stress and worry, whether into their hope or, or joy, as they were dreaming, a man in white came. Maybe you've had this dream. A man in white comes and he invites you to come closer to him, to follow him, to be with him. That man in white is Jesus. He's the one who James is so passionate about and so aggressive about. Brothers and sisters, friends of God, I want you to see that James is so passionate or so, it seems so aggressive about righteousness because he is so passionate about what is ahead on the journey. I don't mean he's so passionate about what's coming in chapter 5 and that you need to come back next week. I mean that James knows what can happen if you set aside your pride and submit yourself fully to God. James knows what can happen if you yield your will and your life to God. Without going into all of the details, James was among one of Jesus' brothers who at the beginning of Jesus' ministry came 
uh, when Jesus returned home to preach in his own synagogue in Mark chapter 2, in, the, in his own community, James was one of Jesus' brothers who returned with Jesus' mother and who tried to stop him from talking. They were there when Jesus was kicked out of the synagogue and walked to the edge of town and was uh, pushed out of the community. Later in Jesus' ministry, James was there when his, Jesus' brothers and mothers tried to take, mother tried to take Jesus home because they were worried that he was out of his mind. And then something happened. By the time we get to the cross, by the time Jesus got to the cross, James was changed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, James became a leader in the early church. He became the most important, one of the most important people in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus did much of his ministry, and a leader in the church there. That was the occasion for him writing this letter. Like the Apostle Paul, James had gone from someone who was resentful of Jesus, who distrusted him, to someone who was passionate about him, whose life was filled with joy and love, and who was eager to share that with others. James knows what can happen if you set aside your pride and give yourself fully to God. God does not wait and will not wait for you to come to him. He has already come to you. He has already made good plans for you, but you have free will. So God is simply waiting for you to respond, to take the next step. If God is sovereign, if he's in control, and if God is good, and if God will not force himself on you because he loves you, because you have free will, and even though it's limited, then the question as we close this morning is, what will you do? What will you do? My intent again this morning is not that you'd be impressed or that you'd be bored, but that you'd consider joining Jesus on the climb. Whether you think you're in control of your whole life or whether you're almost without hope, will you dare to submit yourself more fully to God? We have this series called The Climb because we are all invited to take a step forward, to take another step in an active faith life. For some of us, we are taking our first steps. Others of us have been walking for a long time. But God invites you to take another step as well. As we close in prayer, I invite you to wonder with me what that next step is for you personally. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you because you are sovereign, in control of our whole world. There's lots of people who seem to be in control of our world, who seem to be powerful, and we do not go to them. We come to you not only because you are in control, but also because we experience your love for us. We experience your provision for us. So God, we ask this morning that for each person gathered here, that we would see one example in our own heart of what it might look like to take one more step on the journey, to more fully depend on you,
to give more of our life, more of our finances or our time or our decision-making, more of one area or another. God, you know which it is for each of us. You know what happens in the quietness of our own heart, behind the pride and uh, behind the, the face that other people see. So meet us there, Holy Spirit. Speak to us and lead us on, not in fear or worry, but in joy and comfort and peace. Walk with us on the road that is ahead, on the journey that is ahead, and empower us for the life, for an active life of faith that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.